over a million events a second for a hundred enterprise clients. How do you get to that kind of size? Today we'll be hearing a scaling war story from Liz Fong-Jones of Honeycomb. But before we get there, streaming audio is brought to you by developer.confluent.io, the one place to learn everything you need to know about Kafka, whether you're getting started or, yes, trying to scale those performance issues. We'll give you all the information you need to know. And we'll also teach you how to use Kafka and take you through some step-by-step courses. If you want to use those and you sign up to Confluent Cloud, do use the code PODCAST100. It'll get you $100 of extra free credit, so you can take that course a little slower or a little larger. But before then, please enjoy today's episode of Streaming Audio. Welcome to Streaming Audio. My guest today is Liz Fong-Jones, who is a developer advocate at Honeycomb.io. Has been for the past three years. Is that right, Liz? Just about coming up on three years in February. Coming on three years. Right. So um, what what are Honeycomb? What did being a developer advocate at Honeycomb actually mean? So Honeycomb is a company that helps uh, our clients achieve observability. And we do that by ingesting telemetry data from their systems. And we help process that and surface it so that people can get real-time insights into why is my site slow, uh, which users are experiencing downtime, and help people correct that as quickly as possible. And as a developer advocate, my mission is to help make Honeycomb the best it can be for our developer audience. And that means everything from working in feature development to backend infrastructure to helping educate the world about what we're doing. Right. Okay. That seems to cover a lot of bases. So um, if I'm using Honeycomb, I'm like uh, sending telemetry from my web server and my database and uh, from my blockchain or whatever, and letting you worry about showing it to me in a useful way, right? Yes, that's precisely correct, that we have SDKs like OpenTelemetry that allow people to generate that telemetry data in the form of traces and trace bands and metrics, and they can send it all over to us, and then we handle reliably ingesting it and storing it and querying it. Ah, well, that's the question, isn't it? Reliably. <laughs> tell, tell me a little, bit, important. a little bit about your architecture, because I know it's, it's more than I would want to put together myself. Yes. So there certainly are ways that you could, you know, put together a first pass of a observability platform, right? That first pass might look like having like a, a Jaeger instance that is collecting the data and send it on to a Cassandra instance or something like that, right? Like that's one possible option, but at Honeycomb, we operate at a much larger scale than that would be feasible for. So mm-hmm. We have a dedicated fleet of ingest workers that handle, um, you know, making sure you're authorized to send this data. And then we slice and dice that data into individual events. Um, And then we take each individual event and we send it off to Kafka for durable, reliable kind of serialization and ordering. And then on the other end of Kafka, we've got a, a fleet of consumers that are basically reading off the queue in order to, uh, break those events down into their constituent columns, right? So if you have a field that's called a user agent or a field that's called IP address or a field that's called um, trace ID or span ID, Mm. each of those things from each event coming in in order off the stream is appended to a file per per attribute or per field. And that enables us to kind of group things together, right? That that might share common properties, right? 
you might see common uh, compression properties that you can use uh, to kind of make the user agents compact down a lot. Or you might see that, you know, you have al almost every single value of, um, you know, almost every single value of has cookies turned on is set to yes, right? Like right, those yeah, are sure. things that you can do much more efficiently when you are dealing with all the data from one column at one time. What's the database there? <laughs> so our database here is a homegrown solution. Um, it is a column store that is similar to Facebook's Scuba or the uh, Google Dremel slash Column.io backend. Oh, yeah. Um, so basically, we are slicing and dicing the data. We're storing it and shipping it into flat files, and those flat files make their way over to S3 at some point. Um, but that, that we invented this back in 2016, 2017. Like, a lot of these technologies were not necessarily available open source. Um, so we wound up building our own. Not necessarily that we'd make that decision today, but that's kind of the decision that we went with uh, at the time in 2017. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's funny. Sometimes you make decisions that don't seem like they're la that long away, but five years can be a very long time in internet time, right? Oh, very much so. <laughs> and especially in COVID time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I've been writing something myself, reflecting back on a business that we built, I think in 20 2012 it was. And in hindsight, we would have used Kafka, but I'm not sure Kafka was usable in 2012 in the way we would have needed it today, right? Right. Or people ask me today, you know, well, doesn't Pulsar handle what you do? And I'm like, yes, I mean, maybe. But also we are in the world of having started this complex system in 2017 and maintaining the continuity of it at 99.99% reliability ever since. Ah, there's the rub, right? Um, that kind of reliability question. And you've yeah, grown exactly, up, right? right? Yeah, we've grown a lot and our customer demands have increased, right? Like it doesn't suffice to drop customer data on the floor, right? Like our customers are relying upon us to get that telemetry data in, right? That's why they're paying us. So they don't have to worry about uh, kind of where that telemetry gets sent. And we only, for the most part, we only get one chance to receive it. If we drop that batch of events, it's gone forever. There's a crater in that in that client's graph forever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So tell so. As data's coming in, does it go straight into Kafka or is there a step before Kafka? Um, we obviously have kind of these ingress controllers, right, that are handling, um, you know, validation. Is your API key valid? Are you over okay. quota? Um, kind of repacking things from whatever wire format we get, um, you know, whether it be Z standard compressed JSON, GZIP compressed JSON, or uh, a gRPC protocol buffer, right? right? So we are validating these payloads and then we are passing them on via a Kafka producer um, and using the standard compression to kind of get the best bang for our buck um, and kind of serializing everything in a, a consistent format. The other interesting thing is like, there is one Kafka topic at Honeycomb. Right? Really? There is one consume, there's one producer and two consumers, right? Like, or, or two types of, you know, one, one producer binary, two potential consumers, right? Like that's it. We are, um, using Kafka at very high throughput, especially very high throughput per partition, but we're not actually like using Kafka as a general purpose data bus. And I know that a lot of Confluence other customers like love using Kafka as a generic data bus, but that's not our particular use case, which I think is a definite uh, case where we are different than a lot of the mainstream. So it's really just one really wide topic, if that's mm -hmm. How many partitions do you know out of interest? 70. 70. That seems like a lot to me. 70. <laughs> okay. It's so, um, 
less than people recommend, right? Because people recommend that you have many, many partitions to let you kind of load balance between them pretty fluidly. Um, but right, the, we've yeah. got only 70 partitions for a volume. Okay. And is what size of cons- what size of customer base is that serving? Yes. So we are serving um, hundreds of enterprise customers. Um, we are serving... Um, Essentially, we think in the observability world in terms of number of events per second, right? Like we think about number of trace spans that people are sending us per second. And this is actually something where I can use Honeycomb to introspect Honeycomb itself, right? Like I can go oh. look to see right now. I was going to ask if you ate your own dog food on this. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, we do. So I can actually go in and look right now and see, you know, how many how many messages per second is our Kafka is our Kafka processing? And the answer is mm. our Kafka production cluster is processing about um, right now. It's as we take this one point four million uh, million messages per second. One point four million a second. It's real time data yep. in action. Love it. Crikey. Yep. Okay, but it was a journey to get there, right? So it took you a while to reach that kind of scale. So take me through some of the steps that actually got you to 1.4 million messages a second. Yeah. So what happened was in 2019, um, we were a lot smaller of a company. Um, we had only, you know, 25 employees. We were serving, you know, you could count the number of enterprise customers that, you, that we had on, on two hands, right? And that was a very different time because it meant that a lot of our cost was paid in terms of kind of ongoing overhead of infrastructure, right? That it was relatively, you know, that that you could scale out, but once you scaled out, you couldn't scale back in. So we were kind of, you know, trying to write at the edge of what we could, knowing that if we ratcheted it up, that that was going to incur, like, you know, now you can't ratchet it back down, right? Like you can't ratchet down the number of Kafka partitions. You can't, you know... Once in our case, once you start sending data to a partition, once you have a consumer that's dedicated to reading from that from that partition, right? Like scaling that again doesn't doesn't quite work as well for us. Um, yeah. So and you don't want the number of customers you know, the to decrease. Was... Sorry, you don't want the number of customers right, exactly. to decrease, but it could happen, right? Yeah, exactly. So kind of fixed costs um, and kind of quick and dirty scaling was kind of the way that we were approaching things. Kind of to scale these increments as we needed them. Um, but also, this was a painful world um, in that, you know, something like uh, one-tenth, uh, like one-fifth or one-tenth of our uh, of, of our company's burn rate was just our Amazon bill. Um, so kind of Jeez. that 10 to 20% mark was a little terrifying, especially as the costs kept on going up and up and up the more data, data volume we went through. Was it linear? Was, it, was the price going up roughly with a number of customers or...? Was it worse than that? Yeah, it was going up with a number of customers, but also there was kind of this this tension of we know that even if we are getting more revenue per customer, like having that burn rate go up linearly as at the same time, that's that's a little terrifying when you're you're a startup and your you know runway is measured in months. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So give me some technical details. What did you do to start solving that? What's the first step? So the first thing that we knew that we needed to do was we knew that we needed to stop paying Amazon for um, redundancy that we already had inside of our Kafka cluster. Um, 
it was either, you know, we stay on, on EBS volumes, um, you know, C5 instances, and that we just go to a replication factor of two rather than three. That was kind of the first cost-cutting measure we talked about. Right. But we had some chats, right? Like, and we were like, hey, like, you know, Amazon, we're considering going from three to two. Like, there, there is a cost that if this blows up in our faces, like, we're going to get mad at you. And they were like, no, 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 don't do that. Like, you know, stay at replication factor three. Like, we'd rather work with you to figure out, like, what, what's needed to make that possible, right? So, you know, seeing, seeing that, basically, we evaluated everything from, you know, how much data are we transmitting across availability zone boundaries, right? Like, ideally, you should only be transmitting across one time, right, like per replication, you shouldn't be, you know, reading from multiple different uh, availability zones. That was kind of one recommendation they gave us. But then the other interesting thing was we realized that Elastic Block Store is, you know, there is no commitment discount to EBS. Um, that if you have a Kafka volume that is, you know, one terabyte, like you are going to be paying, uh, that, that's what, you know, 10 cents per gigabyte, that's like $100 per month per, per terabyte, right? Right. So there's only a discount that, for processing, cost, not for storage. Yeah, there there is only a discount on buying whole instances, um, and I don't even think AWS S3 has a volume discount, at least not listed on the website, right? Mm-hmm. So it was, it was this challenge of okay, like if we know that we are already having a replication factor of three. Mm-hmm. And they're scattered across different availability zones. Do we really need to be paying Amazon for the ability to attach and detach volumes from instances or to survive the loss of an individual instance, right? Like EBS has its own redundancy mechanisms. Yeah. So what we realized was we could get cheaper storage um, by and get and get the compute essentially for free. Um, if we switched from running uh, C5 instances and, and EBS to doing a reserved instance purchase of i3 uh, of, of i3 en instances right like the kind of high storage SS, local SSD instances where if you terminate the instance uh-huh. you know you lose local storage right but that you can make a, a commitment right like there is a, a volume pricing a commitment pricing to it that if you say I'm going to need you know six i3 en instances for the next 12 months, They'll give you a discounted rate, which is actually, I think, twenty percent lower than just the cost of the EBS volume that you would, would have really? the equivalent amount of so, Yeah. If you can do your own recovery situation, then you've got Yeah, which Kafka provides for. It's it's cheaper to have processing and temporary storage than just the storage. Yes. Okay, that must have been a happy realization. That was a very happy realization that we had for sure, um, was that there was a way to kind of limit and constrain the cost. The downside of that means that, you know, you now lose the flexibility with an EBS volume. You can say, you know, hey, I need more storage, you know, increase the storage, right? Like, let's ratchet up the storage meter, right? And it'll just let you extend the file system. Everything's fine, right? Like, in this case, if you need more storage, you need more brokers, right? Um, So... And then the flip side to this was actually this interesting waste, right? Like, you know, we were buying, you know, 20, 30 uh, of these instances, and we were barely touching the CPU on them, right? Like, we were just using them for the local disk. <laughs> right, yeah. So did you make? Did you find a way to use it, or is it just sitting there idle now? Nope, nope, we just, we just let it sit there idle, right? Like, you know, oh we, we were very, very... <laughs> You know, paranoid, right? Like that. That if you if you just loaded up your Kafka cluster with a and related workload, it would hurt your latency and thereby impact reliability for users, right? 
if someone sends us a payload of data, um, they expect that data to get ingested within, you know, five milliseconds per event that they send us, right? Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it starts buffering and buffering in, in RAM on their on their hosts rather than getting shipped off to us. So we w- knew we wanted to keep that very, very low latency. So yeah, that was kind of the first step okay. that was like, you know, hey, like, let's pay less for the, let's pay less for the storage. But do you have a problem if they suddenly go down, but you lose data or is there a recovery story there? Ah, uh, yes. So this is part of what we continuously test at Honeycomb. We continuously test our assumptions about recovery. Mm-hmm. So we, for instance, we talked about the consumers, right? The retriever processes that kind of uh, read off, tail off of Kafka and, and serialize things into column stores, right? So we kill one of those processes every week, right? Like we completely delete the instance and make test our automation to make sure it provisions the new one that's able to bootstrap, that's able to replicate data and start, you know, catching up based off of where it was in Kafka. Mm-hmm. So we started doing the same thing to our Kafka instances, right? Like we would kill one per week and verify that our... Um, mechanisms for re-replicating under-replicated partitions, right, and and kind of replacing the old broker with the new broker, we started getting into a cadence of regular broker replacements just to validate that if Amazon, you know, makes one of our instances go away, then it's not going to be an emergency. Okay, so you've got recoverability sorted. You've got this um, cheaper workaround for storage. Can I call it a workaround? Uh, yeah, you can call it a workaround. <laughs> What's the next step to reaching your present day scale? Yeah, so I think the next step that we took here was um, at this point, um, you know, I mentioned Z standard earlier in this conversation. Um, so we were starting to use Z standard to transmit from our clients to us in some cases, um, but we were so still that's using the snap compression, compression protocol, right? Yeah, that's the compression protocol. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we were using Snappy from the Kafka producer to the broker to the consumer. Um, but that was primarily because we knew we wanted to use Z standard, but our client library, because we were a Go shop, we, you know, we are not quite as happy to use a uh, C++ um uh, Kafka, Kafka client, like the, uh, you know, I know Confluent has put a lot of effort into the C++ client, uh, high performance client, but we use, we use the Sarama mm-hmm. native Go client. Um, so it took a while for the Sarama native Go client to have Z-Standard support. So once they had it, we adopted uh, Z-Standard and basically that instantly caught 25% of the bytes that we were storing on disk, 25% of our bandwidth. It was this massive, massive win um, to be able to send the same amount of uncompressed data through, but to have it become compressed to be 25% less than it was before. Was that just because it was a native form? I mean, why do you think it made such a difference? I, I, is it a better uh, suited algorithm? For our particular workload, given... Yeah, for our particular workload, it just delivered much better compression. Um, you know, we had much, many repeated strings and other kinds of things that the compression algorithm was able to deal with more effectively. Right. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Repeated strings are um, ripe for the right kind of algorithm to be chewed through, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, definitely makes it a lot easier, right? Like if you get the batching right, right? Like you, you know, can't compress 10 messages at a time, you might have to compress 100 messages at a time, but like eventually you find those redundancies that are coming through. Right. Yeah. And they're worth finding at your kind of scale. Yeah. Okay. 
But the kind of the challenge that, um, you know, eventually we hit was that, you know, even even when you compress, right, like you are still right, like in this in this circumstance, you're running on a fixed number of brokers, right? Like or, or you have like a relatively finite number of brokers. Each disk mm-hmm. on that broker has a finite amount of space. And we are seeing that kind of margin of what we could keep without filling the disks on our brokers, right? Like because we were doing uh, byte-based retention policies, we found that, that 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 started to erode. That we previously were able to keep like you know thirty-six hours, forty-eight hours of data around, but that suddenly got to be less than twenty-four hours, and we were like, "Uh-oh, this is a problem. Like this is this is not good." Yeah, you can easily have a problem that lasts longer than twenty-four hours if you're having a bad day, right? That's all it takes. Right. Like it's not that it impacts our day to day operations, right? Like under normal circumstances, we're only like replaying the last hour of data, two hours of data at most. Mm -hmm. But if something goes really, really wrong, right? Like let's suppose we have a data eating bug in our storage engine. We need to be able to go back and replay that older data, right? To be able to reconstruct it. And if there's not enough of that window left around, because like, you know, we discover a bug on, you know, on, on Saturday morning, and we realize that this has been a problem since, you know, Thursday or Friday, right? Like, mm-hmm. unless it takes us until Sunday to, like, find the bug, fix the bug, right? Like, you have to have that 48 to 72 hours of replay buffer, or else, like, you have the possibility that you, you don't have a backup plan, you don't have a recovery plan. Um, yeah. So for us, you know, Kafka was our recovery plan, but, you know, as we're talking about, right, like, we only read the most recent hour or two of data under normal circumstances. So it was like, Huh, this is interesting. This is the almost the worst of all worlds, right? Like where we are paying to store on very, very hot local storage local storage, 20 hours of data, right? Which is the mm-hmm. wrong amount of data for long-term recovery, and it's the wrong term, <laughs> wrong amount of data for our daily operational needs. It's 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 terrible, right? Right, right yeah. I see. <laughs> so but why so why are you not just reconstructing entirely from Kafka? That feels like the first strategy I'd go with. Every time you need to recover. Sorry, I'm not sure that I follow that. Sorry, oh, right. like, so when... the, the goal was to be the goal was to be able to re- recover from Kafka, right? Like to recover data from Kafka up to forty-eight hours old, right? Again, like you know, we recognize that Kafka is a streaming solution, um, but at the same time, we don't necessarily want to use something like KSQL because, like, we're looking at we're hoping to look at sixty days of data, right? Like that's kind of why we digested it into the column store, why we exported it off to S3, right? The question is, like, if you have questions about the quality of that data that's on your local disk or on your S3, right, then you have to go back in time and you have to replay Kafka forwards. Um, but if the data is not there on Kafka, you can't reconstruct the data forwards. That was, that was kind of the central problem. Right. So, so... How I mean, I can't quite see how you then squared that circle. What do you do? You've got this exactly wrong amount of recovery window. What, where did yeah, you go? Exactly with that? Did you increase the cover that we're overpaying? Right. Yeah. So we looked at what it would have taken to kind of increase the capacity, um, and you know that turns out to be as we were talking about it at the start of this, right? Like the linear scaling cost, right? That right. you are paying for more instances, for more storage. And like that just didn't add up. That didn't make sense for us. Um, especially given that we knew that in under normal circumstances, we wouldn't be reading from this. It was an insurance policy. And that is an awfully expensive insurance policy that's costing <laughs> you, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars per year. That's that's not worth it. Um 
So what we settled upon was we actually had seen blog posts from Confluent saying that you all were working on a solution to this problem of what happens if you have data that you need to retain um, for a longer period of time for archival purposes, but that you don't necessarily need fast access to it. Um, so this was the Confluent tiered storage feature that appeared in Confluent Platform 6.0. So mm-hmm. we started inquiring about it because this seemed like a thing where... You know, we had been long-term, uh, long-time Confluent Community Edition users, but this was kind of the first thing that kind of really made us think about whether we would see value out of paying for Confluent Platform. Right. Yeah. The idea yeah, because we've done can... these experiments before, right? Like we've done these experiments of like, you know, hey, what happens if you, you know, store a portion of your data on like a um, a EBS like uh, cold cold hard drive storage uh, platters, yeah. right? Like. EBS offers you the option of getting cold hard disk platters, but we tried it and it didn't really work for us because, you know, we were rolling our own tiered storage, essentially. We're rolling right. our own tiered storage, basically saying like, you know, hey, LVM, you are the storage system. Go sort out which blocks are hot and which blocks are cold, right? Like, except for it has no knowledge of the file system, no knowledge of which files are hot, no knowledge of like, you know, this file for, you know, you this file is useless unless you have all of the blocks, right? Like, it didn't know or these, understand any of that, so it did a really, yeah, it did a really terrible job. It's got to understand your data model and your file system structure to actually do it properly, right? Yeah, exactly. So we were seeing, you know, produce times that were in the, you know, hundreds of milliseconds at, at the 99th percentile, and that was not acceptable to us. So we had to back out of that. So we we tried it before. We knew it was a challenging problem, right. and we knew that the right people to solve this were going to be people who are experts in Kafka, who understood how to tell the Kafka broker, you know, how to, this is how you request cold data. This is how, you know, this is what to do with, with the data once it's, once it's sitting there. Yeah, I can absolutely see that's only going to work if it's a Kafka level concern, right? So how did yeah. it go? So we started doing a proof of concept of this in, um, Trying, trying to think about this. That would have been the end of 2020. Um, we started doing the proof of concept of trying out tiered storage, seeing whether it would work for us, kind of initially kicking the tires with, uh, we mentioned earlier the dog fooding, right? So we have a dog food environment and it's a one third or like roughly one third, one quarter uh, model scale of, of, of our production deployment. And that okay. allowed us to gain some confidence in it that, you know, it would tolerate broker death, that it would tolerate, you know, what the latencies were like if you fetch that historical data. Um, and then we went into production in January of, of this year, of 2021, uh, and we started started deploy, deploying it out at scale. Right. It occurs to me that your um, scale model, if it's a quarter, must be a mere 350,000 messages a second, right? Yep, just something tiny, like that. Tiny Near, little model. Nearly, uh... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, crikey. Right, okay. like it's, it has this really cool property of it is a really, right, like it's it's not a fake staging environment. It's something that Honeycomb employees, we use it every day. And but you've it proved that already, right? Many of the aspects of our system. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm convinced. I'm convinced. You've given me a demo already. Okay. So you roll out um, Confluent Platform tiered storage. How did it go? Yeah. Um, it wasn't Confluent's fault, but it exploded in our face. And what happened was we <laughs> tried to change too many variables at the same time. Um, we we're trying to do both tiered storage at the same time 
and we are trying a new class of Amazon instances uh, that had a brand new uh, Nitro uh, hardware and, for, and kind of firmware supervisor. And we also um, were, tr- in the course of this, we also were trying to go back onto EBS, right? Like, because we were like, you know what? Like, actually, we value the ability to twist that knob. Like, you know, we're only going to size the EBS appropriately for two, hour, two or three hours of data. But like, let's let's try, you know, new instances, new tiered tier storage, new firmware, right? Like, this is the newest generation of everything. Let's do it all at once, right? Like, <laughs> So an ambitious happens. start to the um, year. And, and that's a start to the year that ended in way too much pain. Um, okay. So, yeah. And, and that in feels the course like a timely that, warning. We, um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was a timely warning. Um, we also had made some uh, suboptimal decisions around, um, I, I think we'd like had an earlier conversation about, you know, is it safe to turn on, uh, is, it, is it safe to turn on and clean leader elections? Um, so we turned on briefly unclean leader elections and it had accidentally gotten set on the tiered, on the tiering topic because Confluence, right? Like all of Confluence features utilize and do- again, non-fooding, right? Like all of Confluence features yeah. use, Con- use uh, Kafka as the data store. So it turns out when you have unclean leader elections on your tiering topic, that will cause the tiering system to go, oh God, something bad has happened, right? Like I'm going to... I'm going to fail safe by not hearing. So all of our disks started filling up, right? Like on top oh, of all this chaos. It was, oh, yeah, God. yeah, it was, <laughs> it was a little painful. Um, so we had to kind of re- reset and be like, okay, let's, right, like set back to a bunch of conservative settings, right? Like we're going to go back to the, you know, we're going to go back to the um, regular kind of, you know, inst- instant store instances, we can yeah. get slightly larger instance store instances, and it still is a cost savings because we're running fewer of them, right? Like we're only running six and not, you know, 30 of these things, right? Okay. And, you know, saying like, hey, like, you know, okay, unclean leader elections, bad idea. Don't do it, right? <laughs> right? Why do we even, in, in, uh, in the Emperor's New Groove, groove right? Like, why do we even have that lever? Um, <laughs> yeah. So kind of all of all of these all of these things where we're like, okay, back to basics. Like, let's just deploy tiered storage by itself. And it worked phenomenally. It was, it was fine. Um, oh, cool. And it kind of basically did exactly what it expected on the tin when it was the only variable that you changed at a time. And then after that, we were kind of able to iterate from there and kind of make right. smaller changes. Um, one step at a time. Yeah. yeah, one step at a time. Much more smooth. So yeah, so then I think that brings us to the kind of last improvement that we made, which was... Um, about a month and a half ago, really, um, about a month and a half ago, Amazon contacted us and said, like, you know, hey, we hear that you like um, that you like our our instant store bulk storage, like i3 EN series. We hear you like Graviton 2, which is the ARM based uh, in- instances that are lower total cost of ownership. Are you interested okay. in trying this combination of storage instances that are based on ARM? And we said yes, right? Like that—that that seemed like a useful Still thing to try. Still hungry for the bleeding edge. It was, it, right? Like with plans to potentially be able to fall back, right? Like and also changing right. only one thing at a time, right? That's what we had gotten wrong the first time around. Was we change everything at a time? Now we had tiered storage running stably. <laughs> now we could actually go and say, okay, like now we're going to change the underlying instance type on a stable, non-changing set of software. Right. Yeah. 
Okay, that makes sense. So we did some initial validation and Amazon, you know, was very clear with us, you know, hey, like, you know, you're not allowed to use this production workload until like we give the, the all clear, which is fine. But like, we also having been burned from last year, um, having burned by, oh, this, you know, the scale model working fine in dog food at one third scale. We deployed, you know, we deployed the um, to to two of our production, uh, two out of our six production Kafka brokers, this new architecture, just to make sure it would hold up under load, right? Right. Because we knew that the load properties were subtly different between dog food and production, right? Like this wasn't us utilizing it cheekily for production load. This was us doing this as part of our validation process to be able to confidently say, you know, we think. Once this goes GA, we're actually going to be able to switch over. We don't want a repeat of January where we tried a thing and it didn't work. Yeah, absolutely. So how did how long did it take to, for that to roll out? To like to for you to bet it in or decide to so put it in production? So that's kind of I think yeah. It, it basically took us took took us two and a half weeks uh, to be confident enough. Um, so you know we rolled most of our dog food cluster. We rolled a third of our production cluster. And then we had enough confidence based on the performance data that we're seeing that, you know, the claims that Amazon had that it would be, you know, just as much storage and that it would be, uh, it would give us twice the CPU and it, and it would only cost like 14% more than the previous instances we were using. Oh, and double the network too, right? Like that in all these properties, it would let us scale up without increasing the cost any, any further than, you know, just paying 14% more for the instances. Um, and get double the performance out of it. We were like, okay, yeah, wow. sold. Like that, that seems good. <laughs> yeah. Um, so they announced it at reInvent on I think November thirtieth or December first. And by the end of that week, we were one hundred percent migrated over. Um, kind of a combination of us testing our recovery processes by killing brokers every week, anyway. So we knew that the kind of broker replacement worked well. So we just, you know, rotated through all the instances and, you know, kill one, kill the next one, kill the next one, right? Like wait for them to replicate and then and then just, just keep proceeding. Um, so it took us less than a week to fully right. cut over our entire workload to the new instances. Okay. And how's it been going since then? Buttery smooth. Um, completely buttery yeah. smooth. Now the last things that we're kind of trying to work on are just you know, further decreasing that cross availability zone reading process. Um, so, you know, trying to read from local Kafka brokers when we can. Um, and otherwise, you know, just kind of keeping an eye on the system using, you know, using the Honeycomb metrics product to look at the Kafka <laughs> broker metrics. And um, yeah, there, you know, Kafka is no longer a, a, a scaling pain that we have anymore. Um, basically right now, you know, I'm looking at this dashboard and it's like, yeah, you know, it's the, peak of the day on Monday and we're at you no know, 30% saturation on CPU and our brokers. We're at roughly 30% saturation on disk on the brokers, right? Like this feels like a system that can comfortably scale by another factor of two and be all right. So it's kind of yeah. one of those things where, you know, you, you think about this way that this system was two years ago and you're like, Oh gosh, this would have been like scary, right? Like we'd be juggling Kafka brokers. We'd be, you know, paying for all of these C5 brokers with all of their EBS drives. Like this, this would have been like, and we had like very little automation around broker replacements. And and now it's basically running itself, healing itself and kind of just, you know, not automatically scaling, but, you know, we know what the capacity dimensions are having hit many of them over the past year. Like we know what we need to do to keep this thing running. Yeah, yeah. And it, God, it makes you think, doesn't it, that things like 
metrics at first glance seems like such an easy thing to just be an afterthought in a system. But when you really start to get up to serious scale, there are so many small levers to pull and bits to check and test to get actual kind of scalable performance you need, right? Right, exactly. You know, we we think about this, and you, you know, the the headline number on our on our case study is something like you know eighty seven percent reduction cost per megabyte, right? Like, and that didn't come from any one specific change, right? Like, it's just a series of you know anywhere between twenty five to forty percent savings at each you know with each adjustment that we made. Yeah. Crikey. So you kind of have to chain these improvements together, and then after, and that's how you kind of keep that cost low and the and the overhead low. Yeah, <laughs> well, it's it's one of those things that's kind of fascinating, but I'm glad I didn't have to do it. Yeah, and this is a thing that we repeatedly try to emphasize to people is like you know if you want any kind of reliability of of your observability pipeline. You're going to want to have Kafka in there or, or Pulsar or something like it, right? Except for we know that Pulsar is less mature because it's less battle tested, right? So, okay, you know you're going to need a streaming data solution to ingest your streaming observability data. Yeah. Now, do you really think that you can do a, a great job of running that, right? Like, you know, versus someone who is paid to work, you know, more, mostly full time on it, right? Like, and even in our case, right, like we are decent, we think these days at operating Kafka, but we still very much rely on and appreciate having, being able to turn to consulate for kind of any help with the actual like Kafka code itself, right? Like, mm. so it's one of these situations where unless you're very, very good at operating this particular kind of Kafka that is very, very high throughput per topic, right? Like, you're probably not going to do a better job of running your own observability pipeline as opposed to trusting someone who, you know, who, who does it as their, as a professional job. Oh, and by the way, you know, where we also have a design team that thinks about how you design a good user experience when you're interacting with this data or how do you, you know, handle the, the fast querying of the data because it's not just the, you know, stream reliability. It's also the, you know, how you surface it quickly for querying, right? Like there are so many dimensions that go into potentially building your own, like that, you know, we, you know, we think that a lot of what we're sharing here as lessons are not so much things that, um, you know, it's not so much a thing of you should build your own. It's a, if you are using Kafka, here's how to optimize the cost, but think about whether you really want to be running your own Kafka. And, you know, this is why we're yeah. glad that Confluent Cloud exists, right? Like that if people, you know, need a slightly smaller scale Kafka and they want a metered access, for, like that's available to them. They don't have to kind of uh, scan up their own brokers. Yeah, yeah. Plus, on top of all that, it makes me think. You know, if if you're these metrics, the very day you need them to be working well is your bad day, right? If there's if there's a disaster yeah. in your business, a disaster in your yeah, system, yeah, of course, that's the day always, you need this other thing to be completely They're always correlated reliable. failures, right? Like. Yeah, yeah, there are always correlated failures, right? Like if US East One goes down, everyone's having a bad time. We didn't go out, but there was a lot of scrambling um, during that week uh, in which every, everyone else was having significantly worse pain. Um, but yeah, you know, it, it can happen. But definitely, if you are having an outage in your own infrastructure only, right, like, you know, you don't want to correlate failure of your observability. Mm. Yeah. Gods. Well, thank you. Thank you, Liz, and thank you, Honeycomb, for putting in all that work. So that I never have to. Yeah, of course. It's, um, you know, (laughs) 
what keeps me coming to work every day is making developers' lives easier with better observability. Cool. Well, it's been a pleasure observing your story. Can I get away with that pun? I'm going to try to. <laughs> and um, Terrible, terrible pun. Uh, yes, thank you for joining us on the show. I know you have a blog post if anyone wants more gory details on this story, and we'll put that in the show notes. In the meantime, Liz Fong-Jones of Honeycomb, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me on the show. And that wraps it up for another episode of Streaming Audio. Before we go, let me remind you that we're brought to you by developer.confluent.io, the website that will teach you everything we know about Kafka, how to scale it, how to make it perform, and how to get started because that's important too. You can't scale it until you've got started, can you? So why don't you join us on one of our courses that will teach you everything you need to know. And if you do use one of our courses and sign up to Confluent Cloud, use the code PODCAST100 and we'll give you $100 of extra free credit. In the meantime, let me say thank you once again to our guest this week, Liz Fong-Jones. Thank you to Honeycomb for sending her to us. And thank you for listening. If you have any comments or questions or you just want to get in touch, you can find us um, on all the usual internet channels. If you're watching this on YouTube, there's probably a box just down there. And if you're listening to the podcast on audio only, have a look in the show notes because we include all our contact details there. Thank you very much for joining us. Until next time. <laughs>